Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are joined by Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. And Colonel, it's great to catch up with you once again. Are we diving back into the commandments this week? Yes, we are. And those Ten Commandments, they are the moral foundation of law, and they apply for all eternity in all societies. And it's important we look to them as the source of our whole legal system. In fact, you know, we look to the Greek legal system, and we know that in the 500s BC that Solon, the man that Athenians considered their lawgiver, that he had taken a tour for several years of other societies around the Middle East to look at their legal systems and see what he could learn from them to bring back to Athens. And it would seem almost certain that in the process of doing that, that he would have encountered the laws of the Hebrews, which of course would include the Ten Commandments as their centerpiece. And also we see where Plato speaks about the philosopher king and, you know, the ideal ruler and so on. Clement of Alexandria and others in the early church suggested that Plato's model for the ideal philosopher king was Moses. Here is Moses giving laws a thousand years before Plato and 900 years before Solon. But we're going to look at this command today Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And when we see that in the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 20, there's a reason given for the command, and that's that for in six days, God made the heavens and the earth, and in the seventh day, he rested. We dispute how many days it took God to complete his creation, and Those of us who believe the Bible as written will say six days, but I heard one pastor say, no, actually, it was seven days. Because on the seventh day, God created the Sabbath. And that's a very important part of his creation. But when he says that on six days you shall work, and then on the seventh you shall do no work, he gives a reason for this. And the reason is that for in six days, God created the heavens and the earth. But on the seventh day, he rested. Now, if you don't believe that God created the universe in six days, then this Sabbath command makes no sense whatsoever. We're supposed to work for six billion years and then rest for a billion years? without a belief in creation, the whole basis for the Sabbath command is removed. Now, what do we mean by the Sabbath command, and how should it be enforced? Well, we do see, as we look to Jesus' words and actions in Mark 2, 23 through 27, and on in Mark 3, 1 through 6, where he healed on the Sabbath day and Some of the strict scribes and Pharisees objected to that. Likewise, on Luke 13 and John 5, but Jesus said in answer to them that 
the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But we also see, as we look to the Old Testament law in general, that the Hebrews made exceptions on the Sabbath command. And, for example, we have to understand what the Sabbath involves, that the Sabbath was from dusk to dusk, that is, the Sabbath would start at sunset on Friday night and end at sunset on Saturday. And unlike the way we would do it, we would most of us would apply it on Sunday, but we'd say it starts at midnight and ends the following midnight. But even at the time when the Sabbath would apply, the Jews made exceptions for works of necessity, like, for example, healing somebody, or works of charity. And there was an interesting case in the Georgia Supreme Court. It was in 1928, and it involved a gas station that had remained open on Sunday, and the owner of the station was prosecuted for violating the Sunday closing laws. And he said, but people need gas. And anyway, the Georgia Supreme Court looked to Jewish law to see how to apply that. And here's what the Georgia Supreme Court said. We are of the opinion that under the application of even ancient rules, the sale of gasoline to a traveler on the Sabbath day who intends to continue his journey and for whom it is impossible to proceed without gasoline must be a work of necessity. Even under the strictness of the Mosaic law, travel on Sunday was not prohibited, though a limit was prescribed for a Sabbath day's journey and a Sabbath day's visit was not restricted in its purpose to worship or to charity. A Sabbath day's visit might be paid as a mere matter of innocent pleasure. In other words, there were exceptions for works of necessity under Jewish law, healing somebody, or if a policeman needed to arrest somebody, he can't say, well, you wait here, I'll come back Monday and arrest you. Or if the Philistines attack, you can't say to the Philippines, well, stay where you are. We'll be back Monday morning with our army to defend ourselves. No, there were some things that they recognized were works of necessity and there were not a violation of even the Jewish law. And the court decided in the Georgia case that travel was in many cases a necessity. And even if it was not a necessity, still, it was not considered to be work on the Sabbath. It was permitted to travel up to a certain distance on the Sabbath day. And in order to travel, you have to have gas. And so they said that operating a gas station is a work of necessity, and therefore it was an exception to the Georgia law that prohibited businesses from being open on Sunday. Now, the New York courts, uh, 1904, applied a different rule for athletic games. They said athletic games are neither works of necessity nor works of charity. And so a Sunday closing law that would prohibit athletic games on Sunday was upheld as being entirely permissible. Now, looking the way the Jews applied the Sabbath command, we find that they determined that a 
permissible Sabbath day's journey, one that you could engage in without violating the Sabbath law, even if it was only to visit somebody for just for a social visit, you could travel up to 2,000 cubits. Now, a cubit was a measurement that would be from the elbow to the hand. Of course, it's not precise, but that would mean about 18 inches. So we're talking about about 3,000 feet or a little more than half a mile. And anyway, so, but how do you measure that? Well, they determined that if you're traveling on the Sabbath day, you could declare a tree or a rock to be, to be your place of residence. And you could go 2,000 cubits, 3,000 feet beyond that. But in such a case, according to one of the rabbis, he must do the work thoroughly and must say, let my Sabbath residence be at the trunk of that tree. For if he merely said, let my Sabbath residence be under that tree, this would not be sufficient, because the expression would be too general and indefinite. You can see how maybe they're being a bit nitpicky here, and they're applying things in a rather legalistic and oppressive way. Sometimes they would use stones to mark the outside borders of a town, rather than just where the house is in. And that way, instead of having to measure from a point in the town, you could measure your Sabbath day's journey from those outside stones that marked the border. I'd only point out that at least they took the command very seriously. I had a friend back when I lived in Sioux City, Iowa, who was a salesman, and one time he was traveling through a county north of Sioux City, a county called Sioux County, county that was populated by very strict Dutch Reformed people. And anyway, he was running low on gas as he passed through Sioux County on a Sunday, and he tried to find a gas station. They were all closed. He asked a passerby, can you tell me where the owner of the gas station lives? And he did, so he went to the owner of the gas station, and the owner said to him, I cannot sell gas on a Sunday. That is the Sabbath. However, I'm willing to give you gas. And if you want to come back or send me payment later on, you can do that. But I'll give you gas, but I can't sell it to you. Now, you could argue about whether that interpretation, like some of the Jewish interpretation, is too legalistic. But give them credit. They took the command seriously. And let's talk more about this after the break. Welcome back. This is Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law, talking about the commandment to keep the Sabbath day holy. Let's jump right back in. I love the example you just gave, by the way, about how there are there's some nuance here. It's it's not, not quite as black and white as some people might try to make it. Well, let's look at some other Jewish nuances here. And these are not from the Old Testament itself. Some of these are from the Talmud, which is a Jewish expansion of the Old Testament written to try to explain it. I sometimes say that the Torah, the Old Testament, is kind of like the United States Code. The Talmud would be like the United States Code annotated. The Mishnah might be like law review articles written about provisions of the Code. But just a few other rules that the Jews of the ancient world applied, although, as I say, they're not part of the Old Testament itself. One is that you should not look in a mirror 
on the Sabbath. Because you might be tempted to pluck out a gray hair, and that would be working. He also said you could eat an egg on the Sabbath, but only if you, I'm sorry, you could eat an egg which had been laid on the Sabbath, but only if you killed the chicken for Sabbath breaking. Another is that a donkey could be led out of the stable on the Sabbath, but the harness and saddle had to be placed on the donkey the day before the Sabbath. An egg could not be boiled on the Sabbath, either by normal means or by putting it near a hot kettle or by wrapping it in a hot cloth or by putting it on the hot sand outside. If you boiled it before, before the Sabbath, you could eat it on the Sabbath, but you couldn't boil it on the Sabbath. If the lights in your house were on, and this is when we were using oil lamps and so on, but if the lights were on when the Sabbath day came, in other words, at sundown on Friday night, you could not blow them out. But if they had not been lit in time, then you couldn't light, you couldn't light them. In other words, what you need to do is you need to be careful to light your lamps before dusk, before the Sabbath starts, and then you'll have light through the evening. Maybe you can light them in such a way that they're programmed to run out of oil by morning, but at any rate, you can't light them once the Sabbath has started. Nor can you blow them out after the Sabbath has started. It was also unlawful to move furniture on the Sabbath. There is an exception. The exception is you can move a ladder on the Sabbath, but you can only move it four steps. How they arrived at that conclusion, I'm not sure. It was unlawful to wear any jewelry or any ornaments on the Sabbath because they had weight. Even the earring weighs something. And so carrying that earring on your ear is work. And that would be working on the Sabbath, which is prohibited. You are allowed to eat radishes on the Sabbath, but you may not dip them into salt, because if you leave them in the salt too long and pickle them, that would be Sabbath-breaking. And then there's even discussions among the Pharisees as to how long it took to pickle a radish. If a woman got mud on her dress, she was to wait until it had dried. Couldn't just wash it out. But if you wait until it dried, then you could crumple the dress in your hands once, only once, crush it, and then shake it out once. And that'll get rid of some of the dust. If that didn't do the trick, if that didn't get rid of the dust, then you just had to wear it dusty. So they have done this primarily out of respect for God. And you can see how they took God seriously. They took his commands seriously. But also, maybe they took them out of context. And you could argue that God gave this command for rest. But they had turned it into a great burden, which some would argue would be wrong. But again, we see the key principle here. The key principle is respect for God and having that day of rest, partly as a result of the fact that he created us in six days. 
and then he rested. And again, it makes little sense without the reference to creation itself. Well, let's look a little bit at how we apply it today. Now, in Rosenbaum versus the state of Arkansas, this is a 1917 case, the Supreme Court of Arkansas looked at quite a number of leading jurists and philosophers and things that they had said about the Sabbath and why the Sabbath was important. Blackstone, and we're familiar with Blackstone's commentaries, and our founding fathers read Blackstone's commentaries and almost relied on them. In fact, it was said that Blackstone's commentaries sold more copies in America than they did in England, because in England, they had the tradition of the common law. Here in America, in the wilderness, we had a greater need to have it in writing. It was said that many an argument in an early American court was settled simply by a quote from Blackstone. Blackstone says concerning the Sabbath, for besides the notorious indecency and scandal of permitting any secular business to be publicly transacted on that day in a country professing Christianity, and the corruption of morals, which usually follows its proclamation, the keeping one day in seven holy as a time of relaxation and refreshment, as well as for public worship, is of admirable service to a state considered merely as a civil institution. In other words, it has benefits for society regardless of its holiness. He goes on to say, it humanizes by the help of conversation and society the manners of the lower classes, which otherwise would degenerate into a sordid ferocity and savage selfishness of spirit, it enables the industrious workman to pursue his occupation in the ensuing week with health and cheerfulness. It imprints on the minds of the people their sense of their duty to God, so necessary to make them good citizens, but which yet would be worn out and defaced by an unremitted continuance of labor without any stated times of recalling them to the worship of their maker. Daniel Webster and Daniel Webster in the early 1800s was a senator and probably one of the three most prominent men in America of the time. Daniel Webster in the North and John C. Calhoun in the South and Henry Clay of Kentucky is the great compromiser in the middle. But Daniel Webster, who besides being a great patriot, was also a very devout Christian, said, The longer I live, the more highly do I estimate the Christian Sabbath. And the more grateful do I feel to those who impress its importance on the community. Ralph Waldo Emerson, whose theology I wouldn't always agree with, but certainly was a moral philosopher as well. Emerson said, the Sunday is the core of our civilization, dedicated to thought and reverence. It invites to the noblest solitude and the noblest society. Macaulay said, if the Sunday had not been observed as a day of rest during the last three centuries, I have not the slightest doubt that we should have been at this moment a, a poorer people and less civilized. He's simply saying that we need this day of rest so we can not only study the word and worship, but also spend time with family, rest from our labors, think, 
contemplate, read, and this would prevent the masses from degenerating into a great coarseness. It is a refining effect of civilization, they say. Henry Ward Beecher, Sunday is the common people's great liberty day, and they are bound to see that work does not come into it. Somebody once said about the Sabbath commandments, just think of the way we are, that if our boss gives us a day off, we say, what a great guy. If God gives us a day off, we say, what a tyrant. He's trying to infringe on our liberty. What's wrong with this? We'll see further. We are back. This is Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're with Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. And our topic today is the commandment to keep the Sabbath day holy. Well, let's look a little further at the Sabbath in America. We've seen the biblical application. We've seen the historical application. We've seen the value of the Sabbath for society. But let's look to the question here, what about the American colonies? Well, they prohibited work on Sundays, and they punished working on Sundays. And they valued the Ten Commandments very highly. In fact, when Indian nations wanted to come under the protection of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, possibly because they needed protection from another tribe, they would not insist that the Indian nations would become Christians, but they would insist that they follow the Ten Commandments. And one tribe, for example, in 1643, requested to come under the Massachusetts government for protection. And according to Winthrop in his journal about was said on this, they were asked if they would follow the Ten Commandments, and they gave written answers. Question, would they worship the true God that made heaven and earth and not blaspheme them? Answer, we desire to speak reverently of the Englishman's God and not to speak evil of him, because we see the Englishman's God does better for them than other gods do for others. Two, that they should not swear falsely. Answer, we never knew what swearing or an oath was. Three, this is the part I wanted you to see here, not to do any unnecessary work on the Lord's Day within the gates of proper towns. Answer, it is a small thing for us to rest on that day, for we have not much to do any day, and therefore we will forbear on that day. And we think we've improved on that system. Point is that the Sabbath was valued at this time, and even today when we look to what the Supreme Court has had to say about obeying Sabbath laws, McGowan versus Maryland, 1961 case, involved a Sunday closing law for businesses, and the Supreme Court said that this law was constitutional. They upheld it, but not because of religious observance. If this was merely a religious observance, the court might have said that it was an unconstitutional establishment of religion, but they said it is in the interest of people that they have a day off. And government can certainly provide that people be given a day off. Now, it's also an interest to people that that day off be uniform for everybody. Because if you have a family, for example, and father gets Monday off, and the mother gets Thursday off, and the kids are off from school on Saturday, it's pretty hard to plan things unless you have a uniform day off. And so the state can provide for a uniform day off. But how about Sunday? Well, the court said, in light 
spite of the fact that so many people consider Sunday to be a holy day, either for rest or for worship or both, it is not an establishment of religion if the state sets the day of rest to coincide with the day that many regard as the day of religious obligation. And so the court upheld Sunday closing laws there. We've had cases involving those who want Saturday off, and in one of these, Braunfeld versus Braun, the court said the state does not have to provide for, for a closing on Friday or on Saturday, even though that might be a burden on a Jewish businessman who, if he has to follow the Sunday closing laws and be closed on Sunday, but then has to close on Saturday because of his religious convictions and therefore has to be closed two days, that could be an inconvenience, but that's only an indirect burden on religion, not a direct burden. We've had a variety of cases on people either Jews or Seventh-day Adventists or others who will not work on Saturday, whether they can be forced to work on Saturday. And generally, the courts have ruled in favor of those who want to have Saturday off as a day of rest or a day of worship. Sherbert versus Burner is the key case in this regard. Well, how does the Sabbath apply today? Well, all of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament except for the Sabbath commandment. But having the Sabbath be observed is not prohibited in the New Testament either. Has the Sabbath changed from Saturday to Sunday? Well, there are different perspectives on that. For one thing, we read in Acts 20, verse 7, that on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, that indicates that even by the time of the book of Acts, in the early days of the church, they had begun worshiping on Sunday rather than Saturday. In the didact, that is the teaching of the Twelve, which is around, it's not written by the disciples probably, but it comes from about 90 AD. But every Lord's Day, do ye gather yourselves together and break bread? 150 AD, Justin Martyr, one of the church fathers, wrote that, and on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gathered together to one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as time permits. Then when the reader is ceased, the president verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of good things. Then we all rise together and pray, and as we before said, when our prayer is ended, bread and wine and water are brought, and the president in like manner offers prayers and thanksgivings, according to his ability, and the people assent, saying, Amen. This indicates that, that Sunday had become the day of worship rather than Saturday. If that's the case, does that mean Sunday is now the Sabbath? Well, there's a lot of disagreement on that. And there are some who would say, for example, that Christ, with his resurrection, Christ rose on Sunday, and with his resurrection, he recreated all things new. The whole world was in bondage to sin and groaned and travailed in sin, as Romans said. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, as we read in Genesis chapter 3. But that on Christ's resurrection, he recreated all creation. And so Sunday is now the new created day, rather than Saturday being the rest day. And so by this interpretation, Sunday 
rather than Saturday, is the new Sabbath. Others will disagree on that. And I think there has to be some liberty on that. Romans 14, verse 5, Paul says, One man esteemeth every day above another, or one day above another. In other words, celebrates Passover or Easter or Christmas or Saturday or Sunday. Another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. In other words, he is saying that there's liberty on this, and Christians can disagree as to whether they celebrate their worship on Saturday or Sunday, and whether they regard that as a required rest day or not, and how strictly they apply that. And I can only answer for myself that I have started to rethink a lot of the issue concerning the Sabbath day. I'm more concerned that we do observe it than on what day we observe it. But I've come to the conclusion that if we ignore the Sabbath, and like some Christians do, just say that was all done away with, that's finished in the Old Testament, and the Sabbath no longer applies. Yes, we should go to church, but that doesn't mean we can't work and do other things on Sunday. That if we do that, I think we are robbing ourselves of some very important gift that God has given us. And what we do on the Sabbath day, then, we'll call it Sunday for the moment, first of all, activities on the Sabbath day should be God-centered rather than self-centered. That would certainly include church attendance, would also include reading scriptures, maybe reading sermon notes or discussing spiritual things with members of the family or friends, but it should be God-centered rather than self-centered. Activities on whatever day you call it for the Sabbath should be joyful activities. I know my wife tells me that when she was growing up in a Dutch Reformed family that Yes, they observed the Sabbath very strictly, and she hated it. But now, as a pastor's wife, she's come to love Sunday and see it as a day that I get closer to God. I worship, I study, I listen to lectures and so on. And But to make it too onerous a thing can cause children to rebel. And so activities that we do on the Sabbath day should be joyful activities. Now, what about feasting and so on? Well, food preparation, I would say it's maybe a good idea, but as much of the food preparation as you can do before the Sabbath day, the better. But again, I wouldn't apply that as legalistically as the Jews did. And as far as whether other activities like ski resorts and things like that should be open on Sunday, well, I'll just leave that as a matter of liberty. But what we do on Sunday, Sabbath to refresh ourselves, might be different for an office worker than for a forest ranger. But... Welcome back. This is our final segment of, Cl- of Constitution Classroom today here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. 
Colonel, I've really enjoyed your explanation of uh, some of the history behind keeping the Sabbath holy and how uh, how it has uh, found its way into our own system of laws from t- in times and places. Let's talk about some current events. There's uh, There's been a little bit of intrigue involving the Supreme Court since the last time we spoke. I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yes, we've had big news within the last week about the Supreme Court, and that is that one of the three liberal justices, Justice Breyer, has announced his retirement. He is the oldest justice on the court, and he's certainly entitled to retirement, but some believe that he has announced his retirement at this time so that with the Democrats in control of Congress and barely in control of the Senate and the White House, of course, that President Biden could appoint a liberal justice to the court. As you know, we've got nine justices on the Supreme Court, and that number is set by statute. But of these, we have three that we would call liberal justices, Justice Breyer and Justice Kagan and Justice Sotomayor. Of these, Justice Sotomayor is definitely the most liberal, radical, I would say, We have two on the court, probably three, that we could say are pretty solidly conservative, those being Justice Thomas and Justice Alito, who've been on the court for a while, and Justice Gorsuch seems to be lining up with them very well. And then we have three that might not be as solidly conservative as those three, but we think are leaning in the conservative direction. Those are Chief Justice Roberts and... Justice Barrett and Justice Kavanaugh. And of course, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett were all appointees of President Trump, and they have changed the makeup of the court quite a bit. Probably because of these three in the court, we now have a very realistic probability of greatly pulling back on the Roe versus Wade abortion on demand decision if not overturning it entirely, at least limiting it a great deal in the Dobbs versus Mississippi case involving a Mississippi law that would prohibit abortion any time after the 15th week of pregnancy. So if Justice Breyer leaves, and if President Biden makes an appointment, and that appointment is confirmed by the Senate, then that would not change the makeup of the court it would still be three liberal justices. However, it would mean that there would be one of those three who is quite a bit younger than Breyer and therefore likely to be on the court quite a bit longer. And so it would be a victory for the liberal wing of the court in, in the sense that they would have at least three for longer than they might have had this vacancy not occur. If Republicans take control of the Senate in the November elections, then that might make it much more difficult for President Biden to appoint a liberal to the court and get that liberal confirmed by the Senate. Anyway, there is a theory or just a wild idea that has been presented here, and it's not impossible that it could happen, but most of the things I'm reading suggest that it probably won't. And That possibility is that President Biden might appoint his vice president, Kamala Harris, to the Supreme Court. 
If she is confirmed, then that would mean the vice presidency is vacant. And if the vice presidency is vacant, then the president will nominate somebody to be vice president, and that vice president then will have to be confirmed by a simple majority of both houses of Congress. And the possibility is that if Kamala Harris vacated, then Biden might appoint Hillary Clinton or maybe Michelle Obama to be the new vice president. And if that confirmation went into effect, then Hillary Clinton would be vice president. If Biden then couldn't finish out his term, Hillary Clinton would be president, which to me at least is a very scary thought. It raises some interesting difficulties though. First of all, we have a 50-50 tie in the Senate. Now, whether they would vote on strict party lines as to whether to confirm a liberal Democrat to the Supreme Court is hard to say. There are a couple of Democrats, like Senator Sinema of Arizona and Senator Manson of West Virginia, who might not. But unless this nominee were way, way, way to the left, rather than just a traditional liberal, very likely they would vote to confirm. And there's kind of a view among many that the president has a right to appoint somebody of his or her party and of his or her basic philosophy, unless that person is manifestly incompetent or has ethical violations or is just simply a radical or something like that. And so if the vote were 50-50, and it's possible also that several Republicans like Senator Collins or Senator Murkowski, some of those that are more moderate to liberal Republicans, that they might just vote to confirm as well, thinking that Biden is entitled to appoint one of his people. But if the vote were 50-50, then the vice president casts the tie vote, casts the deciding vote. And, of course, that would be Kamala Harris casting that vote in favor of that nominee. Now, here's where a problem comes in, though. There are some who suggest that the vice president does not have the right to break ties on judicial nominations. I don't know about that. I'm reading that the vice president does not have a vote in the Senate except to break a tie, but I don't see other limits on that. It seems to me, from what I can read, that any tie vote, the vice president has the power to cast the deciding vote. Well, what if that were a vote for herself? If she were the nominee, would she have the right to cast the deciding vote in her favor? That might be a more difficult question. And since the vice president is pretty widely unpopular right now, it may be unlikely that she'd get any more support other than those of her own party and maybe not even all of those. But let's consider something else now. Let's suppose that Kamala Harris as vice president were confirmed to the Supreme Court. And so now that she is confirmed to the Supreme Court, she is no longer vice president. If she is no longer vice president, 
Then the president pro tem of the Senate, which is a liberal Democrat, Senator Aiken of Vermont, would preside. But then there wouldn't be somebody to cast a tie vote because he would be one of the 50 Democrats voting. And so if he voted, which possibly he could since he's a senator, it would be 50-50 or 49 yes, 50 no. Nobody would be there to cast a tie vote, and on a tie vote, 50-50, a nomination would fail. And so there's a lot of interesting, intriguing things coming up as to what might happen in this regard. Well, another thing I might mention, we're still dealing with these issues of the mandatory vaccines. There is a study that comes out of Israel right now that says that those who have had COVID are already immune to a certain extent. And in fact, they say that the Israeli study says that those who have the natural immunity from having had COVID are 27 times less likely to come down with COVID than those who have had two vaccinations. And so this sounds pretty pretty positive that at least we ought to be exempting those who have tested positive. We have a case right now that involves an Air Force officer. And on Thursday, the 3rd of February, there's going to be a hearing in a federal district court in Georgia on this officer. She has had her request for a religious exemption denied. And so her case is coming up. We have we are filing a brief in this case in which we argue that the military cannot argue military necessity for forcing everybody to get the vaccine because they are granting thousands of medical and administrative exemptions. If they can grant medical and administrative exemptions, they can grant religious exemptions as well. Continue to pray about this matter. We will see how it comes out. <laughs> 